Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight we continue our story, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. 7. July under the lee of the Diamond Mountain was a month of blanket nights and of warm, glowing days. John and Kisman were in love. He did not know that the little gold football, inscribed with the legend Pro Deo e Patria e Semida, which he had given her, rested on a platinum chain next to her bosom. But it did. And she, for her part, was not aware that a large sapphire, which had dropped one day from her simple coiffure, was stowed away tenderly in John's jewel box. Late one afternoon, when the ruby and ermine music room was quiet, they spent an hour there together. He held her hand, and she gave him such a look that he whispered her name aloud. She bent toward him, then hesitated. Did you say Kismin? she asked softly. Or, she had wanted to be sure, she thought she might have misunderstood. Neither of them had ever kissed before, but in the course of an hour it seemed to make little difference. The afternoon drifted away. That night, when a last breath of music drifted down from the highest tower, they each lay awake, happily dreaming over the separate minutes of the day. They had decided to be married as soon as possible. 8. Every day Mr. Washington and the two young men went hunting or fishing in the deep forests or played golf around the sunlit course, games which John diplomatically allowed his host to win, or swam in the mountain coolness of the lake. John found Mr. Washington a somewhat exacting personality, utterly uninterested in any ideas or opinions except his own. Mrs. Washington was aloof and reserved at all times. She was apparently indifferent to her two daughters and entirely absorbed in her son Percy, with whom she held interminable conversations in rapid Spanish at dinner. Jasmine, the elder daughter, resembled Kismin in appearance, except that she was somewhat bow-legged and terminated in large hands and feet, but was utterly unlike her in temperament. Her favorite books had to do with poor girls who kept house for widowed fathers. John learned from Kisman that Jasmine had never recovered from the shock and disappointment caused her by the termination of the World War, just as she was about to start for Europe as a canteen expert. She had even pined away for a time, and Braddock Washington had taken steps to promote a new war in the Balkans. But she had seen a photograph of some wounded Serbian soldiers and lost interest in the whole proceedings. But Percy and Kisman seemed to have inherited the arrogant attitude in all its harsh magnificence from their father. A chaste and consistent selfishness ran like a pattern through their every idea. John was enchanted by the wonders of the chateau and the valley. Braddock Washington, so Percy told him, had caused to be kidnapped a landscape gardener, an architect, a designer of state settings, and a French decadent poet left over from the last century. 
He had put his entire staff at their disposal, guaranteed to supply them with any materials that the world could offer, and left them to work out some ideas of their own. But one by one they had shown their uselessness. The decadent poet had at once begun bewailing his separation. From the boulevards in spring, he made some vague remarks about spices, apes, and ivories, but said nothing that was of any practical value. The stage designer, on his part, wanted to make the whole valley a series of tricks and sensational effects, a state of things that the Washingtons would soon have grown tired of. And as for the architect and the landscape gardener, they thought only in terms of convention. They must make this like this and that like that. But they had, at least, solved the problem of what was to be done with them. They all went mad early one morning after spending the night in a single room, trying to agree upon the location of a fountain, and were now confined comfortably in an insane asylum in Westport, Connecticut. But, inquired John curiously, who did plan all your wonderful reception rooms and halls and approaches and bathrooms? Well, answered Percy, I blushed to tell you, but it was a moving picture fellow. He was the only man we found who was used to playing with an unlimited amount of money, though he did tuck his napkin in his collar and couldn't read or write. As August drew to a close, John began to regret that he must soon go back to school. He and Kisman had decided to elope the following June. It would be nicer to be married here, Kisman confessed. But of course, I could never get father's permission to marry you at all. Next to that, I'd rather elope. It's terrible for wealthy people to be married in America at present. They always have to send out bulletins to the press saying that they're going to be married in remnants when what they mean is a peck of old second-hand pearls and some used lace worn once by the Empress Eugenie. I know, agreed John fervently. When I was visiting the Schnitzer Murphys, the eldest daughter, Gwendolyn, married a man whose father owns half of West Virginia. She wrote home saying what a tough struggle she was carrying on on his salary as a bank clerk, and then she ended up by saying, Thank God I have four good maids anyhow, and that helps a little. It's absurd, commented Kisman. Think of the millions and millions of people in the world, laborers and all, who get along with only two maids. One afternoon, late in August, a chance remark of Kisman's changed the face of the entire situation and threw John into a state of terror. They were in their favorite grove, In between kisses, John was indulging in some romantic forebodings, which he fancied added poignancy to their relations. Sometimes I think we'll never marry, he said sadly. You're too wealthy, too magnificent. No one as rich as you are can be like other girls. I should marry the daughter of some well-to-do wholesale hardware man from Omaha or Sioux City, and be content with her half-million. I knew the daughter of a wholesale hardware man once, remarked Kisman. I don't think you'd have been contented with her. She was a friend of my sister's. She visited here. Oh, then you've had other guests, exclaimed John in surprise. Kisman seemed to regret her words. Oh, yes, she said hurriedly. We've had a few. But... Aren't you... wasn't your father afraid they'd talk outside? 
Oh, to some extent, to some extent, she answered. Let's talk about something pleasanter. But John's curiosity was aroused. Something pleasanter, he demanded. What's unpleasant about that? Weren't they nice girls? To his great surprise, Gisman began to weep. Yes, that's, that's the whole trouble. I grew quite attached to some of them, so did Jasmine. But she kept inviting them anyway. I couldn't understand it. A dark suspicion was born in John's heart. Do you mean that they told? And your father had them removed? Worse than that, she muttered brokenly. Father took no chances, and Jasmine kept writing them to come, and they had such a good time. She was overcome by a paroxysm of grief. Stunned with the horror of this revelation, John sat there open-mouthed, feeling the nerves of his body twitter like so many sparrows perched upon his spinal column. Now I've told you, and I shouldn't have, she said, calming suddenly and drying her dark blue eyes. Do you mean to say that your father had them murdered before they left? She nodded. In August usually, or early in September, it's only natural for us to get all the pleasure out of them that we can first. How abominable! How... Why, I must be going crazy. Did you really admit that? I did, interrupted Gisman, shrugging her shoulders. We can't very well imprison them like those aviators. They'd be a continual reproach to us every day, and it's always been made easier for Jasmine and me, because Father had it done sooner than we expected. In that way, we avoided any farewell scenes. You murdered them! Oh, cried John. It was done very nicely. They were drugged while they were asleep, and their families were always told that they died of scarlet fever in Butte. But I failed to understand why you kept on inviting them. I didn't, burst out Gisman. I never invited one. Jasmine did, and they always had a very good time. She'd give them the nicest presents toward the last. I shall probably have visitors, too. I'll harden up to it. We can't let such an inevitable thing as death stand in the way of enjoying life while we have it. Think of how lonesome it'd be out here if we never had anyone. Why, father and mother have sacrificed some of their best friends just as we have. And so, cried John accusingly, and so you were letting me make love to you? and pretending to return it, and talking about marriage all the time, knowing perfectly well that I'd never get out of here alive? No, she protested passionately. Not anymore. I did it first. You were here? I couldn't help that. And I thought your last days might as well be pleasant for both of us. But then I fell in love with you, and... and... I'm honestly sorry you're going to be put away though I'd rather you be put away than ever kiss another girl. Oh, you would, would you? cried John ferociously. Much rather. Besides, I've always heard that a girl can have more fun with a man whom she knows she can never marry. Oh, why did I tell you? I've probably spoiled your whole good time now, and we were really enjoying things when you didn't know it. 
I knew it would make things sort of depressing for you. Oh, you did, did you? John's voice trembled with anger. I've heard about enough of this. If you haven't any more pride and decency than to have an affair with a fellow that you know isn't much better than a corpse, I don't want to have any more to do with you. You're not a corpse, she protested in horror. You're not a corpse. I won't have you saying that I kissed a corpse. I said nothing of the sort. You did. You said I kissed a corpse. I didn't. Their voices had risen, but upon a sudden interruption, they both subsided into immediate silence. Footsteps were coming along the path in their direction, and a moment later the rose bushes were parted, displaying Braddock Washington, whose intelligent eyes set in his good-looking, vacuous face were peering in at them. "'Who kissed a corpse?' he demanded in obvious disapproval. "'Nobody,' answered Kisman quietly. "'We were just joking.' "'What are you two doing here, anyhow?' he demanded gruffly. "'Kisman, you ought to be... to be reading or playing golf with your sister. "'Go read! Go play golf! "'Don't let me find you here when I come back.' "'Then he bowed at John and went up the path. "'See?' said Kisman crossly, when he was out of hearing. "'You've spoiled it all.' We can never meet anymore. He won't let me meet you. He'll have you poisoned if if he thought we were in love. We're not anymore, cried John fiercely. So he can set his mind at rest upon that. Moreover, don't fool yourself that I'm going to stay around here. Inside of six hours, I'll be over those mountains. If I have to gnaw a passage through them and on my way east. They had both got to their feet and at this remark, Kisman came close and put her arm through his. I'm going too. You must be crazy. Of course I'm going, she interrupted impatiently. You most certainly are not. You very well, he said quietly. We'll catch up with father and talk it over with him. Defeated, John mustered a sickly smile. Very well, dearest, he agreed with pale and unconvincing affection. We'll go together. His love for her returned and settled placidly on his heart. She was his. She would go with him to share his dangers. He put his arms around her and kissed her fervently. After all, she loved him. She had saved him, in fact. Discussing the matter, they walked slowly back toward the chateau. They decided that since Braddock Washington had seen them together, they had best depart the next night. Nevertheless, John's lips were unusually dry at dinner, and he nervously emptied a great spoonful of peacock soup into his left lung. It had to be carried into the turquoise and sable card room and pounded on the back by one of the underbutlers, which Percy considered a great joke. 9. Long after midnight, John's body gave a nervous jerk. He sat suddenly upright staring into the veils of somnolence that draped the room. Through the squares of blue darkness that were his open windows, he had heard a faint, faraway sound that died upon a bed of wind before identifying itself on his memory, clouded with uneasy dreams. But the sharp noise that had succeeded it was nearer, just outside the room. The click of a turned knob, a footstep, a whisper. He could not tell. A hard lump gathered in the pit of his stomach, and his whole body ached in the moment that he strained agonizingly to hear. 
Then one of the veils seemed to dissolve, and he saw a vague figure standing by the door, a figure only faintly limbed and blocked in upon the darkness, mingled so with the folds of the drapery as to seem distorted, like a reflection seen in a dirty pane of glass. With a sudden movement of fright or resolution, John pressed the button by his bedside, and the next moment he was sitting in the green sunken bath of the adjoining room, waked into alertness by the shock of the cold water which half filled it. He sprang out, and, his wet pajamas scattering a heavy trickle of water behind him, ran for the aquamarine door, which he knew led out onto the ivory landing of the second floor. The door opened noiselessly. A single crimson lamp, burning in a great dome above, lit the magnificent sweep of the carved stairways with a poignant beauty. For a moment, John hesitated, appalled by the silent splendor amassed about him. Seeming to envelope in its gigantic folds and contours the solitary, drenched little figure shivering upon the ivory landing. Then simultaneously two things happened. The door of his own sitting room swung open, precipitating three naked men into the hall. And, as John swayed in wild terror towards the stairway, another door slid back in the wall on the other side of the corridor, and John saw Braddock Washington standing in the lighted lift, wearing a fur coat and a pair of riding boots, which reached to his knees and displayed, above, the glow of his rose-colored pajamas. On the instant... On the instant, the three men, John had never seen them before, and it flashed to his mind that they must be the professional executioners, paused in their movement toward him, and John turned expectantly to the man in the lift, who burst out with an imperious command. Get in here! All three of you! Then, within the instant, the three gentlemen darted into the cage. The oblong of light was blotted out as the lift door slid shut, and John was again alone in the hall. He slumped wearily down against an ivory stair. It was apparent that something portentous had occurred. Something which, for the moment, at least, had postponed his own petty disaster. What was it? Had the men risen in revolt? Had the aviators forced aside the iron bars of the grating? Or had the men of fish stumbled blindly through the hills and gazed with bleak, joyless eyes upon the gaudy valley? John did not know. He heard a faint whir of air as the lift whizzed up again, and then, a moment later, as it descended. It was probable that Percy was hurrying to his father's assistance and it occurred to John that this was his opportunity to join Kisman and plan an immediate escape. He waited until the lift had been silent for several minutes, shivering a little with the night cool that whipped in through his wet pajamas. He returned to his room and dressed himself quickly. Then he mounted a long flight of stairs and turned down the corridor carpeted with Russian sable which led to Kisman's suite. The door of her sitting room was open, and the lamps were lighted. Gisman, in an angora kimono, stood near the window of the room in a listening attitude, and as John entered noiselessly, she turned toward him. Oh, it's you, she whispered, crossing the room to him. Did you hear them? I heard your father's slaves and my... No, she interrupted excitedly. Aeroplanes. Aeroplanes? Perhaps that was the sound that woke me. There are at least a dozen. I saw one a few moments ago, dead against the moon. 
The guard back by the cliff fired his rifle, and that's what roused father. We're going to open on them right away. Are they here on purpose? Yes. It's that Italian who got away. Simultaneously with her last word, a succession of sharp cracks tumbled in through the open window. Gizman uttered a little cry, took a penny with fumbling fingers from a box on her dresser, and ran to one of the electric lights. In an instant, the entire chateau was in darkness. She had blown out the fuse. Come on, she cried to him. We'll go up to the roof garden and watch it from there. Drawing a cape about her, she took his hand, and they found their way out the door. It was only a step to the tower lift, and as she pressed the button that shot them upward, he put his arms around her in the darkness and kissed her mouth. Romance had come to John Unger at last. A minute later, they had stepped out upon the star-white platform. Above, under the misty moon, sliding in and out of the patches of cloud that eddied below it, floated a dozen dark-winged bodies in a constant circling course. From here and there in the valley, flashes of fire leaped toward them, followed by sharp detonations. Kisman clapped her hands with pleasure, which, a moment later, turned to dismay as the aeroplanes, at some prearranged signal, began to release their bombs, and the whole of the valley became a panorama of deep reverberate sound and lurid light. Before long, the aim of the attackers became concentrated upon the points where the anti-aircraft guns were situated, and one of them was almost immediately reduced to a giant cinder to lie smoldering in a park of rose bushes. Kisman begged John, You'll be glad when I tell you that this attack came on the eve of my murder. If I hadn't heard that guard shoot off his gun back by the pass, I should now be stone dead. I can't hear you, cried Kisman, intent on the scene before her. You'll have to talk louder. I simply said, shouted John, that we'd better get out before they began to shell the chateau. Suddenly, the whole portico of the slave quarters cracked asunder. A geyser of flame shot up from under the colonnades, and great fragments of jagged marble were hurled as far as the borders of the lake. John renewed his efforts to compel her to leave. The aim of the aeroplanes was becoming more precise minute by minute, and only two of the anti-aircraft guns were still retaliating. It was obvious that the garrison, encircled with fire, could not hold out much longer. Come on, cried John, pulling Kisman's arm. We've got to go. Do you realize that these aviators will kill you without question if they find you? She consented reluctantly. We'll have to wake Jasmine, she said, as they hurried toward the lift. Then she added in a sort of childish delight, We'll be poor, won't we? Like people in books, and I'll be an orphan and utterly free. Free and poor. What fun! She stopped and raised her lips to him in a delighted kiss. It's impossible to be both together, said John grimly. People have found that out, and I should choose to be free as preferable of the two. As an extra caution, you'd better dump the contents of your jewel box into your pockets. Ten minutes later, the two girls met John in the dark corridor, and they descended to the main floor of the chateau. Passing for the last time through the magnificence of the splendid halls, they stood for a moment out on the terrace, watching the burning slave quarters and the flaming embers of two planes which had fallen on the other side of the lake. A solitary gun was still keeping up a sturdy popping, and the attackers seemed timorous about descending lower, but sent their thunderous fireworks to a circle around it, 
until any chance shot might annihilate its Ethiopian crew. John and the two sisters passed down the marble steps, turned sharply to the left, and began to ascend a narrow path that wound like a garter about the Diamond Mountain. Kisman knew a heavily wooded spot halfway up where they could be concealed and yet be able to observe the wild night in the valley. Finally, to make an escape, where should be necessary, along a secret path laid in a rocky gully. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this to feature on the show. Send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bbjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>